Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a show about how innovation and entrepreneurship can create a fairer, freer, and more prosperous future. I'm your host, Paul Matsko. The coronavirus has highlighted the best and worst of modern society. It's exposed incredible dysfunction in our public institutions, from the mendacity of our politicians to the risk aversion of public health organizations. It's also highlighted the wisdom of the crowds, as most people voluntarily began changing their behavior in response to the virus days or weeks before the government even told them to. We've seen medical personnel risk their health and lives to save others. I've also been reminded in this crisis of an attribute of modern society that we tend to take for granted. Despite all the kvetching about social distancing, arguments about when, where, and how to respond to the virus, there is a bedrock assumption that the overwhelming majority of people have shared from the earliest stages of the pandemic. It is the solid belief that we will fix it that there will be a vaccine, that if we just bend the curve, take precautions, and throw money and smart people at the problem, eventually we'll solve it. This belief operates on the level of assumption. We're, We're barely even conscious of it. And you know what? We probably will. But this belief, so ingrained in our modern culture, had to itself be created, innovated, inculcated. For most of human history, it would have been assumed that the virus was the judgment of a vengeful deity or an improbable, imponderable mystery of nature. But it's so very modern that we just assume that we'll figure it out. And it's that belief itself that means we probably will. Progress begins as an idea, and that idea then begets progress. It is this proposition that I wanted to dig into today. I decided to talk with Joel Mokir, an endowed chair of economics and history at Northwestern University, as well as the author of A Culture of Growth, The Origins of the Modern Economy, which came out with Princeton University Press. Welcome to the show, Dr. Mokir. Hello. This book began as part of a famous lecture series, the Graz Schumpeter Lectures, uh, named for the influential 20th century economist Joseph Schumpeter. Um, our, our listeners may have heard of Schumpeter for coining the phrase creative destruction. I think that's most, you know, ordinary non economist folks will are familiar with that concept. Do you consider yourself a Schumpeterian? And, and what would that label mean in lay terms? <laughs> It's a very good question. Uh, do I consider myself a Schumpeterian? And the sort of wise guy answer is that you first have to tell me exactly what a Schumpeterian is because it's not clear that Schumpeter was a Schumpeterian. <laughs> um, there is a Schumpeterian society of which I'm a member, and I have many colleagues who have written papers uh, on the various aspects of Schumpeterian economics, Schumpeterian competition, Schumpeterian growth. And I'm not totally sure these papers share a lot. So Schumpeter was one of those wide-ranging but somewhat vague uh, intellectuals, uh, very different, for instance, from somebody like, say, Keynes or Hayek, who who always knew where where they stood. With Schumpeter, it was always more complicated uh, where he stood, and uh, he could very often... Uh, quite surprise you. So I'll to give you my definition, and I would argue that in that regard, I am indeed a, a Schumpeterian, but the definition itself may, may be controversial. <laughs> so what I see con- Schumpeter's main contribution um, to, the, to the way we think about economics today is he was one of the first people who to, um, maybe – he, together with Karl Marx, with whom he obviously shared not much, but in this regard, they really saw, both of them saw something that, that other people missed. And that is that, at, you know, economic growth can take place in sort of two different type of modes or mechanisms, okay? And so one of them I would call Smithian and the other I would call uh, Schumpeterian. And Smithian growth is basically the kind of growth that we see through 
most of history, okay? It's growth that occurs because of the gains from trade. So, you know, if, if for one reason or another, trade starts to occur between two regions or two nations or, you know, two areas uh, that weren't trading before, as we all know and understand, um, both of these traders normally gain from the exchange. It's not like if we, you know, if we're doing well, you must be doing poorly, this sort of nonsense about zero sum. We understand that trade is a positive sum game and that, you know, by, by, by creating the conditions for trade and the division of labor, as, uh, which is one of its consequences, uh, you can get something for nothing. And this is how Sh uh, Sh Smith starts his book. And, uh, you know, I've written a lot of economic history that points out that this was a major player in much of the economic growth that we see through much of history before the Industrial Revolution. What I think Schumpeter pointed out uh, is that the Industrial Revolution, or the period after it, really created a different kind of growth, which we call, uh, in his honor, Schumpeterian growth. And that is growth that is essentially driven by human knowledge, or what I call useful knowledge, okay? So we can argue about whether what's useful and what's not, but it's basically things that the society knows. And, you know, clearly... We, the most important thing that we know is what we call today science and technology and what I have called in an earlier book uh, uh, propositional and prescriptive knowledge. Okay, So this is essentially our understanding of natural regularities uh, and phenomena that we can harness for our material needs. And uh, the point that is critically important to understand. I'm not going to be sort of pontificate about this too long, but the point that is really critical to understand is that Smithian growth is essentially bound from above. It is going to start running in to diminishing returns because you can, you, the division of labor can give you something for nothing, but as you take it further and further, at some point it's going to start to level off because essentially labor is already as divided as it will ever get. Uh, the same is true about trade. So suppose you have two nations that were trading and that uh, that weren't trading because, say, somebody put up a, a big tariff or something. And then if somebody comes and removes the tariff, voila, trade occurs, everybody's better off. Wonderful. But then, you know, once you've removed the tariff, it's hard to get more growth uh, because trade is already taking place at a high level. And so, you know, a, a good example that I will give you from our contemporary world is the creation of the European Union. So the European Union basically facilitated trade within the European uh, nations of the European Union. And that was wonderful. They all benefited from that. But now at this point, already there's all the trade that's going to take place is probably already taking place. You may be able to squeeze a bit more, but it's obviously going to run into diminishing returns. And so any kind of Smithian growth is going to be bound from above, which is why much of classical political economy uh, was so pessimistic and always talked about the stationary state. And Schumpeter basically uh, uh, pointed out that, that if it was driven by knowledge, that there is no obvious upper limit to that. And we can always know more, and there's no evidence that whatever is knowable about nature is in some sense bound from above. And so Schumpeterian growth is the form of economic growth that does not run into diminishing returns. And, you know, my view in that regard, I am a Schumpeterian. I really believe that we will continue to experience uh, growth in science and technology and that economic growth from that point of view does not have ever to end because there's really no limit uh, to what's knowable by people, at least not no limit that I can think of or have ever perceived. Now, you know, whether, I don't know, if the, in the year 2500, perhaps we will reach that, but uh, it's not like um, Smithian growth, which is, uh, you know, as we say in, 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 the, uh, in the lingo, concave, meaning, you know, it's going to run into uh, diminishing returns. And that is really critically important because one of the critical components of modern economic history is that growth was sustainable. Whereas in the past, growth always took place, but then it 
petered out. It sort of vanished. I mean, you, know, you look at, I'll give you one example I like very much, and that's, say, the Dutch Golden Age. So the Netherlands was a very poor place in, say, 1350, 1400. And then you sort of start seeing that they become commercially more sophisticated. Their fishing techniques improve. Even in manufacturing, they start to live in cities. By 1650, they are the richest place on the planet. And, you know, we have the, the Amsterdam merchant houses and the Rembrandt paintings to, to prove it. I could afford these things. But then a strange thing happens. You know, it ends. By the second half of the 17th century, all the evidence that we have shows that growth comes to an end. And in the 18th century, it's basically a stagnant place. It's, it's stagnant at a high level, but it stops growing. And that is because basically, well, there's more than one reason I should add, you know, to be precise. But one of the main reasons is that, that this year, basically, they had exhausted the opportunities of growth. And, um, and, and so that would not have happened if there had been more of a technological engine driving it. There was a little bit, but not enough. Whereas the Industrial Revolution really is the age at which technology replaces trade and um, the gains from it as the main engines of economic growth. Now, I, I should add that there always have been dual engines, okay? That it's not true that Smithian growth ended with the Industrial Revolution. In fact, the two, you can think of all kinds of clever ways, and I spend many boring lectures to my students pointing this out, how the two sort of reinforce one another. Some of them are kind of obvious. Like if you invent a steamship, you're going to have more trade because the transportation costs are going down. Right, that kind of thing, or railroads, or or or, or airplanes. Uh, so they 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 affect one another and they reinforce one another. But in the end, I think the main engine of economic growth is uh, technological ch change and um, the growth of science. And I think that is how I see Schumpeter's main contribution. And I, I buy into it. So in that regard, it, I am a Schumpeterian. Well, that was a, a long answer to a short question. But. <laughs> no, 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 that's a, that's a great answer. And well, it, it leads into a couple of other observations I had. I, I like the framing that you put on this concept. Uh, uh, one of the things you do, you, you root um, the distinction of games between people and games against nature. You actually root that in the Talmudic tradition. Yes. Um, <laughs> and how we have to appreciate both. Uh, I mean, is that is that what you're talking about here in, in, in the you know Smithian versus Schumpeterian? To, you, to a large extent, that's true. Also, you've got to be careful about this. So it is true that uh, Smithian growth depends entirely on what people do, right? And so, uh, whereas in 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 uh, Schumpeterian growth, at the very basic level, it's a game against nature, okay? We have a natural problem, okay, we need, which we need to solve. How to make the soil more fertile or how to prevent smallpox or, you know, use electricity, whatever, okay? And so we nature is not cooperative unless we force it to. So it, nature is full of little germs and viruses that want to kill us and nature makes us cold in the winter and hot in the summer and dark at night. And, you know, we, we've, we're trying to harness natural regularities to essentially control nature. Once you say that, however, you realize that the game in which we control nature is in some sense a social game. So every no inventor works entirely in a vacuum, okay? The inventor connects to other people. He gets ideas from other people. He needs, you know, skilled workers to build his models and his machinery. I mean, we can go on and on and on. Uh, but at the very fundamental level, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it is us against nature. We as human beings are trying to understand how nature works and what the laws are and what the phenomena are. Uh, some of them are simple, some of them are complicated, and some of them we get wrong for a long time, and then somebody comes around and says, wait, wait a minute. And then there are some areas we basically admit that we don't know what's going on. Um, I don't to tell anybody living in the age of COVID that we're looking around us, and we say, gee, you know, this virus keeps surprising us. Well, that, what that tells you is uh, we don't know enough. And uh, But it's, it's us against this 
thing that nature throws at us, okay? Now, obviously, we make more progress if we cooperate, if we divide the labor, if we have, you know, immunologists and virologists and, um, you know, epidemiologists all sort of each doing their thing and talking to each other and collaborating with, with each other. Um, and that, that's, that's how we solve the problem. But at some level, you've got somebody whose cranium, so to speak, whose brain produces Newton's law or Einstein's relativity theory or, uh, you know, Maxwell's equations. I mean, that happens between uh, uh, James Clerk Maxwell and his paper pad in which he solves his equations. And so that's, in that sense, yes, it is a game against nature. You were talking about progress, and I am struck by the extent to which when you read – and I'm a historian by training. So when you read older sources, people didn't assume that progress would just happen in the same way that people operate from this kind of assumption today. I mean if you go and survey the ordinary person, they expect that next year their cell phone will get faster, their car will get safer, their homes will get bigger and better over time. They just assume progress or even with COVID – People have assumed that, oh, we'll just set smart people to go do some science at it. Go find a vaccine, find a cure, and they'll do that eventually. A, a progress is assumed. But I, I don't think that folks in the Middle Ages would have thought that same way. They didn't you know, say, oh, the Black Plague, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll fix it. No, it was just a, a divine curse or judgment or just inexplicable, inexplicable phenomenon. So this this idea of progress is a thing that had to be created and invented itself. Um, have you seen that? How, how's that that idea of progress and how it's shifting attitudes towards it? How does that show up in your work? Well, it is my sincere belief that what I show in my book, A Culture of Growth, is how this concept was essentially born in Europe. Now, you know, if you dig deep enough, you can find earlier sources in the Middle Ages, even in antiquity, of people who said, you know, maybe there could be some progress and so on and so forth. But the reigning paradigm is just as what you say. You know, it's what it says uh, uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, you know, generation comes and generation goes and there is nothing new under the sun. And that history may move in cycles, as the Romans believed, but, you know, once it goes up, it goes down again, it goes up, it goes down again, but it is basically, as the statisticians say, stationary process. And um, that that's something that people start to abandon in, the, in early modern Europe. And um, it's striking, and I hope I don't sound uh, Eurocentric, you're a historian, so you, if you run into the term, I don't want to sound Eurocentric, but this is something that's very difficult to see in other civilizations. You do not see it in, say, Islamic civilization in the Middle East. You do not see it in China, but you start seeing it in Europe. Now, mind you, it's not a consensus. There are lots of people who say, you know, progress, what progress? Or, you know, well, we've had a little bit of advances, but it's going to come to an end. And in the end, you know, it's, it's just going to go down. And so this is a this is a struggle, but I would say that by about say the last third of the 17th century, maybe by 1700, you know, depending on uh, the the people who believe in progress become increasingly influential, and uh, what comes out of that is something which we call the Enlightenment. And I think the Enlightenment, by and large, although not entirely, is committed to a concept of Progress. I mean, you see that in Smith, you see it in a different way in Hume, and uh, you see it very strongly in some French thinking like Turgot and Condorcet, even in Diderot and the Encyclopedies. I mean, this is something that becomes increasingly dominant in European culture. But, you know, what is important to realize is that this idea is proposed, I mean, it's probably proposed at some point in the, in the 16th century, in something called the market for ideas, which is, a, I think, a, a terribly important concept. And in that market for ideas, people come propose uh, this notion of 
progress, and you know, and they think about progress of science, and they think progress in what you, we would call technology, which we, they would call the useful arts. And then there are other forms of progress um, that people start thinking about, uh, progress in institutions, maybe uh, rulers will become less unruly, so to speak, or maybe war will become less devastating. Maybe we can get war altogether. All start, people start thinking about international cooperation and even some kind of, you know, uh, supranational bodies like the United Nations. Here we see these ideas uh, floating around in the 17th century. Hugo Grotius, for instance, would be establishing concepts of international law. So people really think that we can make the world a better place, and that once we have made it into a better place, it will stay a better place, which is critical because, you know, that, that sort of removes the cyclicality uh, from the story. And I think those notions of, of continuous progress lie at the heart of the social and political and cultural development of three of the main countries that drive this, the United States, or which becomes the United States, uh, the fr France, and Britain. So, in, you know, the United States of, and France, of course, have a revolution, and essentially the concepts of the revolution are built on a notion of continuous progress. Britain avoids the revolution, but you look at the sort of reforms that are happening in Britain and the way people talk, and you start seeing that even conservatives increasingly become committed to a concept of progress. Now, just to make quite sure, um, there are serious doubts whether it can be sustained because of what I talked about earlier, about the notion of, 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 uh, of Smithian growth essentially running into diminishing returns. They didn't use the terminology, but that's what it boils down to. But there is another element that threatens progress or the concept of progress, and that's Malthusianism. So what you see happening is people say, well, yeah, some progress is possible, but in the end it will all go to naught. And it will go to naught because population growth will swamp everything. Uh, and so if you read, you know, not just Malthus, but Ricardo and, and, and Mill, and they, I mean, the whole notion is, well, yeah, well, it's been great and we've had all this machinery, but all it will do is we'll have it encourage people to have more babies and then eventually we'll run out of food. And once people start realizing is, you know, my golly, that's not going to happen. I think the concept of progress becomes much more deeply entrenched and, and rooted because this, this was the big threat to progress in the 19th uh, century. And, you know, I think by 1900, that concept is slowly being pushed out the door and, you know, and, and, and so progress becomes much more of a pervasive notion. And then something happens, which I think casts a very different kind of doubt on it, and that's World War I. And people start realizing that progress can be threatened uh, by, you know, not by nature, and not by us running into diminishing returns, but what we do to one another. And then, of course, once you get... World War II and the awareness of nuclear weapons, this becomes all the much all the more acute. And so this continuous tension between people who think progress is possible and progress is desirable, which is not the same, of course. And here's how we bring it about. And then there are three groups of people <laughs> who oppose that. Okay, there are those who say it's not possible. They also say maybe it's possible, but it's not desirable for a variety of reasons. And finally, people say, well, it's possible and it's, it's, um, it's desirable, but um, I don't think we can bring it about. I think it will fail. And so, you know, and, and, and we're, still, we're still there, you know, uh, uh, Paul. Uh, you have a lot of people who oppose one particular aspect of progress, but there is a whole sort of lobby that basically argues against economic growth, that economic growth is a bad thing because of what it does to the planet and that it causes more inequality. And, uh, you know, we, and, 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 and all we're doing, there's a whole school of Scott that says, all we're doing is producing goods that we don't need. Now, I'm not certainly sure how anybody knows what we need or we don't need, but, you know, uh, uh, there's, but there, there, 
just this debate is sort of never ending. And it goes up and it goes down. It's, it's fascinating to watch how, you know, belief in uh, opti- this kind of optimism. And, you know, if you look at the 1950s and 1960s, you know, it's, it's very powerful. Everybody says, oh, you know, we're doing great. We're going to grow. We just invented, you know, uh, antibiotics. And we have, you know, we're making more automobiles and we're making, you know, everything is better. And then you start people saying, oh, wait a minute. And this is sort of what's happening in the late 60s. And then it goes back and forth, back and forth. And uh, it's fascinating to watch because clearly this is, a, you know, this is somehow deep wired in us. You know, there's this, this notion that uh, it, generation cometh and generation goeth and there is nothing new under the sun. And if anything we are learning from modern economic history is, in all due respect, you know, to the the good book, that's just bloody nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) This this basic argument reminds me very much of, you know, Deirdre McCloskey's bourgeois trilogy, the emphasis on the importance of culture rather than looking at, I don't know, simple accumulation. Like if you just pile up enough stuff, eventually it hits critical mass and you get rich and the society takes off. Um, but like, so it fits in the McCloskey vein. Um, I am struck too, as I'm listening to, you know, you talk about the 1950s. My, my, my father is a chemist by trade and uh, grew up in the 50s. And I remember one time as a teenager going with him on a trip, he was so excited to go see the museum I think it was the American Chemical Society. And so we go in here and it's like this wonderland for chemists. You know, ah. the, and it's all very like 50s paraphernalia, like, you know, ke- chemistry sets for every little kid uh, under the Christmas tree. And all this 1950s chemistry is going to save the world. Like we're going to, you know, and how different that attitude felt uh, in, you know, I don't know, I guess I was there in the 90s uh, versus how, you know, so you can see that shifting attitude in one lifetime, um, which is quite striking. Um, and folks have observed, I mean, we are in something, uh, people like this call it the tech lash today, a bit of a backlash against technology. Absolutely. Um, now I don't know how far you would take that. We, we had uh, economic historian Carl Frey on the podcast last year to talk about his book, the technology trap. And he took it to a point where he said that tech lash isn't just a passing fleeting phenomenon, but that we're actually in an angles pause, a period when the gains from productivity go to capital instead of the labor. And that leads to political backlash like Marx and Engels. Uh, do you agree? I mean, would you take that observation that far? I do. I'm not only. I mean, I, I agree with 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 Frey on some things and disagree with him on some other things. I think we are living in a different era, and you know, as a professional economic historian, I am actually very lukewarm to say, "Hey, you know, it's just like it used to be in this other episode, which we know well and we know how it ended," because our age is quite different. And, and, you know, notions of inequality and of struggles between, you know, if you want labor versus capital, which is kind of a Marxist concept, but, 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 but I think are, are very different from, from what they are today than what they were in the 19th century. So I'm not all that hot on Engels' pause. What is to some extent true is that there seems in a superficial way, to be a sharp increase in inequality, which is a great concern. And there's a whole sort of school of economics led by Thomas Piketty, which everybody was talking about. And there's a bunch of his followers at Berkeley following this and, uh, and who worry about inequality. And I think there is a sort of a social movement, which is sort of personified in peoples like Bernie Sanders, who basically think that this is the highest priority uh, in, 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 in what's happening today in capitalist societies. And so I have a, a bunch of footnotes to that, none of which completely refutes it, but uh, which they are, which one ought to worry about. The first is that this is very much an Anglo-Saxon kind of phenomenon. I mean, we see this rise in inequality happening in, in a fairly small subset of countries, but not in others. And so perhaps... There is a reason for that, and perhaps 
you know, we're doing something right that they're doing wrong or vice versa. But clearly this is not an, an, a law of nature or a result of the technology. It's a result of other institutions. And we sort of know what they are, declining unions, you know, and, you know, uh, various modes of corporate governance and, and so on and so forth. So that's one thing. The second thing is that on a global level, it's not true. That is to say the world is becoming more equal, largely because two very large and formerly poor countries, India and China, are growing faster than the West. And so if you look at the world as a whole, inequality is declining simply because the, the weight on China and the weight on India, if they're growing faster than the United States, that shrinks the gap between the two societies and reduces global inequality. So that's, that's, that's a concern and that's very much inconsistent with, with Engels' pause. The third thing, and that's, I think, the most, in some ways, most interesting one, is that I think we're not measuring inequality correctly. And that, uh, for one thing, people keep confusing inequality of wealth with inequality of income. And clearly, inequality of wealth is much worse than inequality of income. Everybody understands that. But you, it's, it, it's odd how people jump from one to the other, depending on what they need for their argument. And it's very important uh, to keep those apart. And then when you start talking about inequality of wealth and inequality of income, you've got to specify precisely what you mean. And here, here precision and detail are really uh, critical. Um, what wealth is exactly counted? Well, Piketty, for instance, counts fi mostly financial wealth. He's not interested in human capital. But human capital is <laughs> the major asset of what most people have. I, as a college professor with a PhD and, you know, and, and 45 years of experience, I embody a certain amount of human capital for which my university uh, pays me. That's how I make my money. I, you know, my, my wealth is my, you know, my pension fund, you know, which is, yeah, which is kind of nice, but that's not where the inequality is. The inequality is in my income and debts and the asset that I'm being paid for is my human capital. Now, human capital, almost by definition, is not going to be as unequally distributed as physical capital, simply because there's sort of limits to what you can do. So the max you can reach is, you know, maybe a PhD, you know, with tenure at some university. And then that's much better than somebody who hasn't finished high school. But the gap bet between those two is much smaller than the gap between sort of your median income and Mark Zuckerberg or Sheldon Adelson, you know, where the, where the gap is, where, where the ratio is me measured in, 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 in many, many millions. And so that's, in some sense, if you measure it correctly and you specify how you measure it, you can see there's a deep ambiguity there. In addition, I think there is the further mis uh, qualification that I have, which is that a lot of the fruits of progress of the last, say, 40 or 50 years uh, which benefit mankind are distributed very equally by their very definition. So I'll give you an example of something that I actually detest. But basically uh, 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 illustrates my point. You take social media, okay? So, you know, access to Twitter has changed a lot of people's lives. We could argue whether it's for the better or for the worse. I would argue it's for the better. Uh, even so, there are some things about Twitter I don't like, and I actually don't like Twitter at all. And, you know, there's some issues with it which we all know about, and, you know, politics and so on. But let's face it, okay, Twitter has made people's lives better because, you know, it's a revealed preference. People like it. It, it. Certainly in this age in which social contact has been has been reduced so drastically, social media has been people's window to the rest of society. And so it's cheap, it's accessible. In fact, it's so cheap, it's free. And that makes my point. The point is that Sheldon Adelson, you know, and, and uh, my neighbors have the same access to Twitter. You know, the fact that he is, uh, you know, a million times richer than they are doesn't give him any advantage. And you, know, you start looking at that example, you realize that's basically all over. I mean, there are lots of things in which, which you know, having more wealth at some point doesn't buy. I mean, it, you know, he can, he can, you know, he probably flies 
uh, on a private plane, whereas I fly to Europe on, on, on United, when I did, at least I have <laughs> it's sort of come to an end right now, but you know, you know what I mean? I mean, it's still, he fly, he's more comfortable, but we both get there in the same time. And uh, the gap between the comfort that he enjoys and what I enjoy is not proportional to the gap in our income. And that's true if he needs an MRI or that's true if, you know, he needs to use his cell phone or if he eats, you know, a, a I mean, at some point, you know, uh, 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 th th those gaps stop mattering. And so inequality of wealth, it's not clear <laughs> why, it's, you know, and why it matters. Now, Having said that, of course, if you have no cushion at all, if you have no nothing to fall back on, you're more vulnerable. And, and of course, that's what's been happening during the current crisis. And that's bad. And I, But that is that could be easily uh, alleviated. In fact, we did that for the first time around. And now we have, you know, political institutions have to screw it up. But basically, I, I'm not convinced that uh, the people who are in some sense, at the losing end of this growing inequality, that that, that is actually such a major issue. Uh, during the first Industrial Revolution, most of these conditions did not hold. That is to say, you know, money really did buy some a very different lifestyle. It bought you another 10 years of life expectancy. It, 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 it bought you access to a whole bunch of things that poor people didn't have. And in that sense, it made a, a much bigger difference. And I think it was also true that at that point, global inequality was rising, not falling, because the West was growing and the rest of the world was not. And so I am, shall we say, suspicious of these facile historical analogies. And I will tell you what I tell my students, uh, uh, which is uh, uh, something that I dub very modestly Mokir's theorem. And Mokir's theorem says every sentence that starts with the words history teaches us is false. <laughs> yes. Yes. The grand capital H history. The, yeah. History, uh, does, <laughs> history doesn't teach us anything. Yeah, and yeah. any kind of conclusions or policy recommendations that are based on some kind of his, historical analogy. Uh, uh, is is really wrong. And so, I mean, I have seen this in my lifetime many times. And I, you know, the example that I like, which is not from economic history, but it, it, it is, what is, is, the, is the argument about appeasement in the late 1930s. And everybody said, ah, you know, uh, Chamberlain and, and Halifax appeased Hitler and it was a terrible idea and Churchill was right and so for you know given what happened then we should now invade Iraq I mean I I have heard I've seen that argument in fact I think I've, I've heard Dick Cheney make it or, or or maybe Rumsfeld some some one of those clowns and it was that was a terrible terrible thing to do I mean yeah, notion yeah. that in some sense Saddam Hussein was a threat the way Hitler was it's just ridiculous. And uh, the, but but the argument sounds very convincing, you know. Appeasement is bad, and then you quite you quote Winston Churchill, and you know there's all this stuff. You know, it, it, it's wonderful, but it's misleading, and that I think is true in economic history as well. Um, we are living in an age unlike any kind of age. I'm right now. I'm actually preparing a lecture on the 1918 flu epidemic. And people sort of try to draw lessons from the 1918 flu epidemic, Spanish flu, so-called, so and our own, uh, our own uh, ep uh, COVID crisis. And that's terribly dangerous because the people in 1918 really had no idea what the flu was and what caused it. And so you, you realize that the realization or the discovery that the Spanish flu was caused by a virus only happened in 1933, 15 years after, after it. Whereas we not only had within days we knew it was a virus, but within weeks, you know, we had this genomic sequence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, there's still a lot we don't know, but you can't compare that. And 
Uh, and then you can look at the Black Death in the 14th century, which you mentioned earlier. People were totally clueless. At least in 1918, they realized that it was contagious and they had certain uh, uh, you know, means of, of, of minimizing contagion, even if they didn't know exactly why they worked. We know so much more than they do. And so uh, we really think we're going to get a vaccine well, you know, I think there's been some debate about when that when it's going to be ready. But at some point, we will overcome this thing, and we will do it fa- much faster than anything in the past. I mean, the Black Death, you know, first occurred in Europe in 1347, and it really disappeared only in 1720. So we have 350 years of that of that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not going to have to yeah. wait that long <laughs> to find an answer to COVID, and so. These analogies strike me as as really facile and misleading, uh, and my my sort of intuition as an economist, uh, you know, I'm trained as both, and uh, my intuition as an economist is, uh, you know, uh, sweat the details, look at the models, write down what you think is really going on, and then you know, f- uh, make sure that the, the differences between the two situations don't. Uh, dominate over the over the uh, over the commonalities, and I think that's true for almost every historical uh, uh, analogy that we're drawing. So that was that was sort of my one of my main complaints uh, uh, about Frey's book. So speaking of Twitter and essentially costless or near costless communications technology today, and, and, and you know, the, everyone gets that communications technology was vital, a vital part of the, the Industrial Revolution from you know, the movable type printing press to the telegraph, right? We, we get that kind of intuitively. Um, you write at one point in the book, uh, the prediction of this model, which you call interconnectivity, is that the veritable explosion of communication technology in the late 20th century will lead to an acceleration of technological progress as social interactions and information exchanges have become essentially costless regardless of distance. And yet I- I've read that you know many economists think we've entered a period of economic stagnation. I mean, I, Tyler Cowen calls it the great stagnation. Um, and, and usually we see a coupling – that technological innovation leads to productivity growth. And yet productivity growth has seems to have slowed over the last half century, precisely as this communication revolution take, took place. So, so what gives? Uh, but remember, productivity is driven by a lot of things. And the notion that we can sort of, I mean, this is one of the first things I teach, sorry to sort of sound like a professor, but they, no, I don't no, like it. Uh, when, I, when, I, you know, when, I, when I teach them, look, we have two different things. We have technological progress, which we know more or less how to define, and then we have productivity growth. And people merrily jump from one to the other and say, ah, look, I mean, productivity growth has been, so what's happening to technology? Productivity growth depends on Lots and lots of other things. I must say, I have developed over the years a very healthy suspicion of these sort of total factor productivity statistics. And my colleague Robert Gordon, who is you know one of the great economists who has been spending his life studying productivity, basically doesn't disagree with me on this. And that is that there are many issues with the productivity statistics. In fact, the problem with technological progress in general, and I think this is a statement that your listeners will agree with, is it's awfully difficult to measure it. And this is very counterintuitive because economists want to measure things, right? We, we, we like numbers. We like quantification. This is what we do. But technology... It's kind of hard to quantify. So there are basically two schools. There are those who look at total factor productivity growth and say, well, let's hope it's all driven by technology and not by other things like changes in competition or changes in things that we can't measure or this, that, or the other. And then there are people uh, who who say, let's count patents. So patents are a reflection of technological creativity. And if, if, you know, under the same circumstance, we get more patents or fewer patents, uh, they will tell you something. And that's problematic too, as we both uh, know. And the problem with uh, inventions and any kind of technological progress is they don't uh, obey the laws of arithmetic. 
And anything that doesn't obey the laws of arithmetic, it can't be counted by definition. And so the fact of the matter is that sometimes one invention and another inventions don't add up to two inventions because they complement each other. And so one of them is, is worthless without the other. Think of the internal combustion engine and the steering wheel, okay? So if you have an internal combustion engine without a steering wheel, you don't have an invention, you've got something useless. If you have a steering wheel without an internal combustion engine, it's useless. So sometimes they they uh, uh, complement each other. So one invention plus one invention equals more than two inventions. It equals something bigger. Sometimes they replace each other, okay? So if I have a, you know, a, a Sharpie and a ballpoint pen, uh, they're close substitutes. If I invent both of them, I may have one and a half inventions. And, you know, that's true across the board. They don't... And then, of course, you have to weight them by quality. Some inventions are important, some are not important. I mean, so th this is really hard to do. And so after I've done all of those, but in the end, I think there is no substitute for just good old narratives. So... I tell, and you know, if you've seen my book at the Lever of Riches or my later books, The Enlightened Economy, I basically say, look, I'm in favor of technological progress, but because I can't really count it, here's a bunch of stories. And so I talk about electricity, I talk about steel, I talk about chemical fertilizer, you know, you could, you could talk about, uh, you know, nuclear power, and we can talk about uh, 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 genetic engineering, you know, you name it. But these tell you, hey, we are making fabulous progress. And so I'm looking around me, okay? And I am looking at what's happening in genetic engineering. And I'm looking at what is happening in material science. And I'm looking what's happening in nanotechnology. And I'm looking what's happening in energy generation and, and, and distribution. And uh, there's no question that there is an enormous amount of innovation going on. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's not spread equally over the economy. And my colleague, Bob Gordon, you know, his, his, his argument <laughs> is, look around your kitchen, he says. What do you see there that's, that's new? I mean, the microwave has been around 40 years. You know, your, your gas stove has been around 100 years. Uh, uh, your refrigerator has been around, you know, 60 years. So, you know, more, more than 60 years now. And on and on. I said, oh, where's the technological progress? And so I just sent him, <laughs> I just sent him the other day a picture of my Yuffie. So my Yuffie is this robot that goes around my house and cleans the floor. And, you know, it's, you know, it's not something that's going to change my life. But you look at this machine and you go, holy cow, you know, this thing is smart. I mean, it, it, it avoids falling down the stairs. And it, you know, if it can't go on because it hits a, a chair, it keeps trying and trying until it finds a different way. When it's done, it finds its base and it sits on its base and it recharges by itself. And you go, man, this is, this is ingenuity. So that ingenuity obviously does not change my life. But the same ingenuity, Paul, is going to help us overcome the biggest existential crisis that the human race has ever faced, which is what we're facing. That's not COVID, but it's climate change. Um, I know this is not always accepted by everybody, but I belong to an, a huge majority of 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 of, of uh, people who, who can read who can read the numbers and basically say, look, I mean, this is upon us, and my. My view is that the solution will be technological. It will not be political. We will never get our act together, not just because many countries, the government is lukewarm to do anything, but international cooperation, which will be necessary, is unfeasible. What is feasible is techniques that don't emit and that, uh, and that are cheaper. And we are, we are getting to that point, and then the, the market will do it. We don't need subsidies. We don't need anything. Maybe a little bit just to get us over the hump. But by, but by and large, we can um, – the, techno the technology will do it. We will come up with new techniques that will solve this because this is what people want. And, and so that's, 
And so th- how that will show up in the productivity statistics is, is not at all obvious. But it will be progress because we will have averted a major danger. So that's where I stand. I am struck uh, when I talk to people who, you know, engineers, entrepreneurs, I mean, economists, the different versus folks in public policy and in, in the political class, the the difference in their optimism or pessimism on the subject, like the 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 optimism about being able to innovate our way through the challenge, whether it's you know people come up with all kinds of fascinating ways of of uh, mitigating carbon emissions, uh, you know, carbon sequestration or oh man, or, capturing uh, uh, geoengineering. Uh, all kinds of cool, fascinating stuff, and but there's such a stark divide, cultural divide between that segment of society and uh, and the kind of political class, and that's I that know, I know, and it, 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 it's totally fascinating, and it's also interesting to study uh, how the dynamics of that work, because the odd thing is that we have had for you know, uh, 75 years of technology, which is essentially zero emissions. But the people who are worried about emissions are even more against that technology than they are against uh, 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 hydrocarbon burning, and that's nuclear technology. And so they grab... So a few things have gone wrong with nuclear technology. We all know about Chernobyl and Fukushima. But compared to the damage caused by the burning of fossil fuels, these things are small, are small change. And so, uh, so now I'm not saying that, that nuclear will necessarily be the solution. It will probably be part of the solution. And, 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 and to some extent, it can make up the gap between what, you know, what solar and wind can provide and, and sort of back it up in, 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 in some way when these other things have, have you know, very seasonal or, or other problems. But, uh, but, but you know, but that technology, much of that technology is either is basically available. We just have to refine it and tweak it, which we will do. And so, I'm a great optimist in that. I am not sure that that will affect productivity the, uh, in in any way that we will be able to measure, because in some sense, it's just replacing something else. I hope you found Dr. Mokir's thoughts as interesting as I did. There's much more in his book that we encourage you to check out, like using cultural evolution as a framework for understanding the dissemination of ideas about progress, case studies of cultural entrepreneurs like Francis Bacon, and so on. But until next time, be well. This episode of Building Tomorrow was produced by Landry Ayers for Libertarianism.org. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, check out our online encyclopedia or subscribe to one of our half-dozen podcasts.